Listening to FabRadioInternational.com, and this is Brave New Words, sponsored by Starburst Magazine, and you can also find us on the Wonky Spanner. My name is Ed Fortune, and I'm your host, and I'm also here with. I'm Ross. And I'm producer Al. So, after that terrible bit of radio nonsense, let's talk about what we're going to do on the show today. Well, we're going to talk about a bit of book news. Great! Book news! Book news. Uh, it's a bit of old book news, but it's book news. Uh, and it's newsy and it's booky. Uh, and we're also going to talk about all things Abnett. By which I mean Nick Abnett oh. and the book Savant. Excellent. And uh, we might get on to some other books as well. So, next up, a jingle! Across the world, 24 hours a day. That was a jingle. It was a jingle. What a lovely jingle it was. It was an excellent jingle. We are brave new words, and this is the only book news you will ever need. So, shall we, shall we do the, the newsy book, bookie news? Go for it. This happened a bit ago. It was some time. It was a period of time that stuff happened. Shall we talk about the Gemmel Awards very briefly? We should, because they feature a friend of the show, I believe. Uh, they do feature a friend of the show. So, the Gemmel Awards. Um, the right. So, the Gemmel Awards are named after David Gemmel. Um, they have these fantastic prizes. They do. And the fact that they're like proper, solid, physical things. I, I attended one a couple of years ago. I, I attended one, was it last year? Yes. It was last year. Uh, and half of it is... Let the, me check the diary I maintained for you. Thank you. Yes, it was last year, 2015. Right, yes, brilliant. Uh, very efficient, thank you very much. Thank you. So, yes, so I went to a Gemmel Awards, you went to a Gemmel Awards. It's pretty much the the first half of the Gemmel Awards is them going, David Gemmel is not with us anymore and it's very sad. Which, which is, is very sad. Which is very sad. Very sad. And he left us with an excellent le- legacy of novels. Uh, have we discussed his novels? We, we have should. not done a Gemmel show. We should. We should do. Uh, perhaps some some we should get all of us who have read plenty of Gemmel should get together and do a bit of Gemmel. We can't all fit in the book book at once, can we? That's possible. I mean, all the presenters who've done a bit of Gemmel. So yes, <laughs> um, so the way the Gemmels work is, I believe, publishers submit and then the public votes. Yes. Um, so um, what we've got here is we've got the Ravenheart Award, Award which is for best artwork. And that went to Jason Chan for The Liar's Key by Mark Lawrence. Okay. It's a nice cover. It's a very nice cover. Um, the Morning Star Award went to Peter Newman, The Vagrant. This, this Morning Star is for the best newcomer. Yes. It? Now, the book's called The Vagrant. Peter Newman is not a vagrant. No. Peter Newman is, in fact, the guy who wrote The, the Vagrant and is also the lovely butler. I say lovely, sinister butler in um, Tea and Jeopardy, which is another book podcast. Yes, that you should that you should listen to once you've listened to this one. Uh, you should tell all your friends. Uh, and also the Legend of no- uh, Legend Award, which is for best novel, uh, went also to The Liar's Key by Mark Lawrence. Which Very co- covers and books do tend to cover, follow each other in popularity. Sometimes it's, it's a thing. Yeah, I have noticed. Um, well, we we have discussed. 
judging books by their cover and whether or not yeah. it works. We, we have and we were harsh judges. We will continue to judge books by their cover because, you know, we're shallow. Uh, <laughs> Also, we get sent so many of the flipping things, you know, there's got to be some point. You say that, but it's built the extra extra wing of, of the book nuke. <laughs> it's, so, it's one of the problems. It's also filled the extra wing of the book nuke, which is the problem. We're not complaining. No. It's one of the problems with the book nuke, in fact, is that it's made of books, and sometimes if you want to get to a book, you have to knock down the entire building. But never mind. Uh, we have orangutans that sort it out for us. Uh, so... Or the British Fantasy Society, which is to do with novels, by the way, just in case you, you haven't worked that out. The British Fantasy Society is an organisation that deals with fantasy novels. Um, I've got a copy of the British Fantasy Society Journal, a number 16 in my hands, and I'm sure it's lovely. So, um, they had they had FantasyCon, which was in Scarborough, which is one of our favourite places, because mm. it's fun to be in Scarborough. But it was Scarborough in September, so hmm, a bit cold. Uh, most people had fun, from what we gather, and there were fantastic prizes. Uh, so Best Anthology went to The Doll Collection, uh, which is edited by Ellen Datlow uh, of Tor Books. I have to say, I personally think that uh, African Monsters was robbed, uh, which is the Fox Spirit Books Anthology. But uh, uh, Spectral Pipe Press also were very close in with issuing there. Um, Jude Dillon won Best Artist. Um, shall we try and go through all of these? Yep. Let's give it a go. So, Best Collection went to Go Summer Stories. Um, one of the ones I hadn't read. Uh, uh, Tannery Drew had put together Best Collection um, at Prime Books. Uh, best Comic Slash Graphic Novel went to Bitch Planet. Because, you know, strong female characters, science fiction, great stuff. But then you look at the nominations... And it's Bitch Planet, Ms. Marvel, Nimona, Red Sonja, Saga, and The Sandman. That's an amazing collection of comic books. That sounds like an amazing collection. It is a fantastic collection. Best fantasy novel went to... Can you guess? Can you guess? Can you guess? If you guessed Naomi Novik and Uprooted... You, you, she She's pretty much won everything this year. Oh, okay. Um, Guns of the Dawn, Adrian Tchaikovsky didn't win. Um, but, you know... He did win a clock for the children of time, so you know. I think he's still quite satisfied. Uh, let's I, I think this is you know, the kind of crowd of people who, if they didn't win this, at least they think, oh, applause to the people who did. Well, absolutely. Yes. I mean, they're all fantastic. I mean, it's not like this is the Hugo Award. Well, I mean, normally, normally when the Hugo Awards is working properly, yes, um, you actually get a good selection. This is a good selection of British fantasy books and Excellent. fantasy stuff. I like um, a good selection. I. I Think was the best film TV was Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noel. Um, I think perhaps Inside Number Nine was robbed again, but then I, I Inside Number Nine is beautifully creepy. And if you haven't seen it, if you if, if it's passed you by, it is really creepy, kind of anthology style. At this point, I quite... I've missed both the book and the adaptation of, of Strange and Noel. I watched the TV version, I quite liked it. I've got the book on my shelf somewhere. Still in the cellophane. It is still in the cellophane, and uh, yes, if anybody else touches that, I will kill them. don't come in cellophane. They new. Okay. Quite a lot I'm of books. I'm not getting my books new enough. I keep finding them in bookshelves unwrapped. Well, there's quite a few of the ones that in the book nook come in pairs. Uh, it's the way they're supposed Fruit to. Fruit bait delivered <laughs> book. Mm. <laughs> <Some> literature. <laughs> so, yes, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> are, are they throwing at us? Is it fresh fruit? 
Delish novel, in fairness. I love delicious novels. It's what I survive on. Um, nom, 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 nom. Best horror, the August Derleth Award, went to uh, Raw Blood by Katrina Ward. I've not read it, so I'm not going to comment. Uh, best Independent Press went to Mark Gascoigne of Angry Robot Books, or the Angry Robot himself. Uh, best Nonfiction went to Letters to Tittree. Hooray! So, kind of a strong feminist vibe. Can I say strong feminist vibe? Yeah, why not? It's strong yeah, feminist vibe. Um, and, now, someone brought this up on me, because I, I, in a news article I said, uh, this has been going for two years, and they went, actually, I think you'll find it's been going since this period of time and then it was restarted it was restarted but anyway the call person live in a well actually yeah well actually in fact but yeah, they were right I was just okay. like oh, yes but we can take it anyway so there's <laughs> there, there is a special award which is called the call Carl Edward Wagner Award okay and that's been around since 2009 and you can judge it a couple of different ways as well the special award has been on and off as part of the British Fantasy Society for years and years and years well if it wasn't you know if it was regular they wouldn't be special well, that's a good point. This time around, it went to all the red shirts who helped run the event. Right, okay. So, because yes. they, they, they're described as red shirts. And yep. occasionally they turned into the polygons and, you know, abducted or turned into the gods and this sort of thing. It's a hard life being it's a red shirt. Hard life being a red shirt. So, uh, congratulations to anyone who ever volunteered at a British Fantasy Society Award. Uh, you can write for the British Fantasy Journal. They are accepting um, uh, submissions don't believe you get paid but it is a prestigious publication if you uh, do get paid do correct us if you do get paid please do correct us uh, I'm just flipping through this briefly the British Fantasy Society journal it is £35 to join the British Fantasy Society but you do get a lovely regular the journal does look very lovely you do you get quite a lot it's quite proper spine and you get a tenner off the fantasy con every year so okay. and if you spend an extra fiver then you can add a plus one as well, nice. which is nice, it's kind of useful. So, uh, we didn't go to Scarborough because we were on exciting adventures, so we missed FantasyCon. Uh, next year, it's in Daventry, which is where I'm nobody sh- knows. I'm not sure. Well, it's Dave, so you know, is Daventry in, in L space? Well, almost certainly, you can get to more spaces via L space. So, is pe- Daventry slightly more in L space? I have no idea. The reason people are complaining about Dave Entry because mostly uh, it's the actual hotel is not near like a town and shops and restaurants and things. Right. So and quite often these things, these constant. Oh, cons. oh! It's it's just south of Watford Gap Services. Oh. South of Rugby. So it's technically in London. Uh, no, no, because Watford Gap Services. So it's technically not in Watford the north. Services. No, it's below Gap. It's below Coventry. It's in the Midlands. <laughs> it's north of Northampton. But it's not in it's Coventry. It's across from Stratford upon Avon. It's below Coventry. Listeners outside the UK, this is how our geography works. Okay, basically, Coventry it's is Lugabru- it's, it's nowhere near Lugabooga. It's you... pronounced lowbrow. <laughs> <laughs> is that anywhere near Loughborough? <laughs> so it's a bit further south of Middlebrow. <laughs> <laughs> We've just killed our producer. Let's not do that too often. <laughs> Is that actually a fantasy map? Is that a real map? Real? It's Google, it must be real. There's a dragon on that. That's because it... Wales is on there. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> of course, Wales has a real dragon over in the map. So it's a map with dragons in it. It's a map of... They live in the top left-hand corner. Well, this is a scale thing, because obviously you need to know what, exactly what the size of Wales is for the sake of any natural disaster. It is near Royal Leamington Spa, so maybe it's near the lifeboat station. Ooh. 
Yes, the, the, there is a lifeboat station at Royal Leamington Spa. Which so, you might need if the dragon attacks. Very much so. But... No, it's, it's very much south of Lugabooga. Oh, right, okay, so it's south of Lugabooga. Yeah, and Leicestershire. Yeah. Um, wow. But yes, but it's and it's it's far enough away from Coventry. Which and is this is why good. we don't mock people who only know what word who only know the word because they read it, not how they pronounce it in conversation. It's the other side of Birmingham. But it's not in Coventry. Can I point out that it's not in Coventry? Can I point out it's not in Birmingham? That's another plus. By the way, if you live in Coventry, or Birmingham, we're very sorry. We'd like to apologise. Not for taking, taking, not having a go at Coventry. Just we'd like to apologise. This looks this looks horrendously like a new town just going off the map. In fairness, Coventry is one of the few time, towns that was ruined by tourism. Anyway, <laughs> oh, oh my! You can't say that. <laughs> just did. I'm talking about 1975, obviously. Shall we go for a jingle? We shall go for Let's a jingle. Let's go for a jingle. Starburst Radio. The greatest radio show in the universe. Every Wednesday, 9pm till 11pm. Exclusive to Fab Radio International. The jingle. That was brilliant. Excellent jingle. Uh, again, of course, if you want to advertise with the show, you can uh, get in touch with ed.fortune.starburstmagazine.com. Uh, you can also catch us up on the Brave New Words Super Secret Book Club, which you can find on Facebook. Uh, we are findable on Tumblr as Brave New Words. Yeah. Uh, you can get get catch us on Twitter at Radio Bookworm, and you can catch us on the Facebooks at Radio Bookworm as well, and probably somewhere else. I've probably missed something. There's a mix cloud somewhere. We're everywhere. <laughs> We should, I should sort out a YouTube channel, and by this time I probably have. <gasps> oh, what have you discovered? There isn't even a railway station. In Daventry? No. I, I looked at the map and I went, you know what, that looks to me like somebody has built a road on top of where the old track bed used to be. How what? far is it from Hogwarts? Daventry? Yeah. Uh, I, no, I, well, you've got is, to it, get... is this the train that goes the opposite direction from the one at King's Cross? That's a good point, because one has to. Yeah, so well, the, the train has to go back the other direction. Where did the not posh kids go to for magic school? That's what I want to know. Maybe it's Daventry. I thought it was just the one school. Yeah. Anyway, shall we... Like somebody else at Quidditch, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Shall we talk about books? Indeed, Which... that Daventry bypass built over the site. I can, I can spot demolished railway track beds, even from Google Maps. And in this episode, we found the internet and there's a map. Books! Books! <laughs> so, um... Books? What a revolutionary concept. What is a book? Right. Damn it, damn it, you all. Jingle. Jingle. Do, 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 you see, we are not introducing this book well. And we're back. So, I'm going to talk about Savant by Nick Abnett. We love Nick Abnett. We, we do. Known as Mum. Known as Mum. She's lovely. She's a well known um, person on, on the UK science fiction book scene. She is. Um, she has a blog. She's very intelligent, and this is actually surprisingly her debut novel. Yes, yes. yes. I, I, I have all... been reading her blog for a while. This is it's not it's not her first novel, but it's her first novel as Nick Abner. Yes, because she's also known as Nick Vincent. So, I really like Nick Vincent slash Nick Abner's um, writing on her blog. I've liked her short stories. Um, she wrote her comics are good. Yeah, she's written some good comic stuff. She wrote uh, excellent bit in, 
uh, piece for the Sabat World Anthology. Yep. Uh, she's written some absolutely fantastic short stories. Savant is utterly different to a lot of stuff that we'll be used to from what she's produced. It's very, very different. And I have to say, I found Savant utterly engaging and also a bit of a chore at the same time. I had to read it because I had to know what was next and I was constantly fascinated. But oh my goodness, it bimbles. It is the world's most bimbly book. It, it, it just wanders across the world. Or it doesn't, that's the problem. It doesn't really go anywhere except it goes around in circles. Which is interesting because the cover is this big mass of spirally, sparkly weirdness. Sort of-ish, kind of. Right, one of the things it doesn't do is it doesn't actually introduce its base concept very well. The base concept is this. There is a shield of power, psychic power, that protects the planet Earth. It keeps the planet Earth hidden. Right. Um, because all the noise that we make attracts yeah. some some unknown of it. It's never explained what. Okay. But there's something out there that we want to stay away from. So, providing that we um, have the shield up, we can have telly, we can have progress, we can have science, we have stuff. Uh, if we there's don't have the shield up, it's lights out. Right. We, we this have, sounds like a an, an, a reaction to all of the science fiction stories where we get invaded by other people. This is a non-invasion science fiction novel. Yes, because we put up a shield. We have a shield. This is a precaution against all the other universes. The way the shield works is this. There are people who are known as actives. Okay. Um, they have an assistant and a companion. And actives tend to be very cerebral in nature. They tend to like to talk about science and maths. Um, and they tend to, as a rule, live at universities. They're essentially the top academic. Right. So an active... The, the, the way the world is set up is this. From what we understand, something awful has happened to the world. The world is now monitored, but not controlled by, because civil liberties are a very important thing, yeah. by a thing called the service. That doesn't sound ominous at all. Oh no! Wait. The service monitors. Um, it's 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 an honour to be called to duty and to be part of to to, to be part of the service. If you see what I mean. Is it the sort of honour that might lead to being shot in the head with a rifle? No, 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 not at all. You you get selected um, to to be part of this world, and you kind of it's kind of like an academic structure. Right. If you see what I mean, so you start off as a student, you might end up becoming a senior. Um, you get chosen to be essentially a citizen of this society. Right. Um, and people have little buttons that they press, and they dial in for what they want to do, and they contact service, and service responds with tone. Okay. So if you think something along the lines of THX 1138 or um, 1984, Brave New Words, and that sort of that sort of a world. But rather than a horribly oppressive utopia, it's just incredibly ordered. Rather than this kind of horribly top-down problem, everything's kind of structured and people dial in. Torb is is an active. He's he's 
also a master, which means that he's the top university academic who teaches people. Um, and there's lots of masters in the world. Masters have companions, and they have assistants, and they look after each other, and they, they talk, and they do stuff. Um, Torb has Milu, sorry, Mitu, who is his assistant companion. Mitu looks after Torb. Torb looks after Mitu. Okay? Torb essentially is a genius level savant, mathematic guy, and then everything's the same as far as he's concerned. His routine is always the same, and it's because, you know, he's got a level of um, neurodiverse behaviour. Yeah. Essentially. But he's also a genius. He's the, the world's greatest ma- ma- mathematician. And then one day, his shoe squeaks. And he goes, this is not the same. Gets a student to do some calculations for him. The student comes back the following day. And his master has covered the place in equations. These equations are then basically put on the world internet. And then bit by bit, the shield begins to fall down. Right. And that's the setup. That's where we are at the, the start of the novel. What the this shoe. squeaky shoe. The, what this is is it's a slow, incredibly character-driven dystopian world. It's a world of great. It feels like a world of great corridors. It's not. You get a little bit more as you go along, but it feels like an incredibly ordered world. Um. I think if I had a psychology degree, I'd love this even more. I found it difficult to get on with. It's very much a scientific fiction novel, and I love Brave New Worlds. I mean, you know, this show was called Brave New Words. I mean, come on. You know, I. And well, there's I, a reason we picked the title. I love THX 1138, and I love that kind of anti utopian world feeling, and that kind of those ordered worlds where. You know, creativity feels like it's been mutilated in some way, and that human beings aren't quite being being what they call they can be in this sort of you know world of great corridors. Which if this world feels very an- antiseptic, shall we say? It feels very ordered. Right. There are some great characters in here. There are some great ideas in here. What it doesn't do is it doesn't set out its stall soon enough for my liking. It doesn't do the thing at the very start where it's like keyword stakes, and I don't actually care about Torb because Torb isn't really a person um, I mean he is and he's got a personality, he's lovely but he's not exciting and Me Too is not exciting and the, the, the French police officer guy is not Good. exciting I'm glad you followed up with you know, not just the French in general <laughs> oh well that but and and so on and it's lovely and it's it is absolutely a lovely novel but I wouldn't read it again and I well, I want to yes and I think you should but it's not it, it's one of those things it's like it's like the ghost train you know the ghost train at the fair mm. right okay where everyone goes you should do the ghost train and you do the ghost train and you're expecting to be changed by your experience of terror. What you actually have is you have a lovely train journey inside a musty building 
with some ghosts, paintings of ghosts. And you come out of the ghost train and you go, that was lovely. I liked my little journey on my little train and I saw some lovely pictures and there was a dancing zebra and it was weird. And, and that was nice. But what hasn't happened is I haven't been scared. And then Savant is like that. You like you start your journey and you go, this is lovely. And then you end your journey and you go, that was lovely. I'm not sure why. It goes on and on and on in a normal circle and then it stops. It feels very much like the first novel. And I was surprised because it's Nick Abnett and I was expecting it to be more polished. And it feels like the first novel. And it feels like there should be more to it. But I don't want another world story set in this world. Okay, oh, I was I was going to ask from the description whether it's a, a setup. For I'm a not hungry for... I'm not hungry for... Do you know what? I, I quite like to see it as a movie. But I quite like to see it as a 60-minute... 70s style Forbin Project style movie that kind of you know especially with the tones because you can be, everyone's life is ordered by the signing into service and the tone and then there's another tone and so on and these kind of very kind of ordered ordered worlds it's a, it's a vivid world it's an academic world it's an interesting world um, does it go anywhere sort of do you learn anything? Sort of. Are you entertained? Yes. If you go in expecting shooty bang bang in space, you're about to be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> and you shouldn't. You absolutely shouldn't. Um, nor should you expect a Hunger Games style dystopia. Nor should you expect the misery that is George Orwell. Um, none of these things which you might be able to surmise... You know, when you say science fiction, you say dystopia. Um, none of these things are there. What this is is it's academics in space doing academic things, but it's not in space. It's academics in a far, far future world. So that so sounds, sounds pretty much like it's going where it's supposed to. This it does, and it's setting its own tone, and it's not like other things, which is kind of what you want as well. It's utterly charming, okay. um, and it's very different, and it's very refreshing, and I can see why it was. I can see why it exists. But I have a feeling that it's going to really annoy a whole load of people, and all the people are going to be utterly delighted. And I'm that's all right. And I'm delightfully annoyed by it, I'm an, and I'm annoyingly delighted by it, because on the one hand it's so different that it was just like, oh, what a breath of fresh air. And on the other hand, I was like, so, so what? What? Where have we been? I tell you what, I would compare compare it to actually. I would compare it to. Entirely different reasons. Planetfall by Emma Newman. Right. They're nothing like each other. Okay. Except I, I can see brilliant comparison. This go- is going very well. They're nothing like each other except they do that thing where you end up with some cognitive dissonance at the end. So, yeah, and that cognitive dissonance makes you think about it way way after the novel itself okay a lingering book is good shall we do some jingles the gay agenda only on fab radio international radio as it should be that was a jingle that was a jingle 
I'm not sure that was as lovely as the last one. Well, you know, we shall, shall take our jingle people out back and give them a severe kicking. There's a bit of budget cut. That's a bit cruel. <laughs> our jingles are handcrafted. By yetis on the foothills of Everest. There's been a budget cut. There has been a budget cut. We, we can't afford to use the yetis anymore. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm sorry. Yetis don't read as much as we thought they did. Because um, obviously we're paying books. So, let's talk about a book about a book written by someone with the surname of Abnet. Because this this show's been done alphabetically. Apparently, yes. <laughs> so we talked about Nick Vincent, who is Nick our, who is Nick Abnet uh, for the book Savant, um, and she is there is also another Abnet called Dan Abnet. So, slightly more obscure author. Slightly more obscure author. And it's just it's one of those things just that we happen to have both those books in our book pile. They're both coming out at the same this time. Yeah, uh, Savant comes out a bit later than the re-release of Zenos. Zenos is out, out by the time you get your hands on this. Um, but yeah, at the same time, we have these two books to review. On one hand, we've got Savant, which is lovely and it's sedate and it's relaxed and it's academic and it's cerebral and you feel ever so slightly smarter when you finish reading it you still can't quite sure where you've been and you're not sure where it's gone but still you've had a sort of fun and you want to write about it and talk about it and go over people and go what was that about in the same you know had you been to i don't know one of the early look best on movies for example or something made by Werner herzog for example that sort of a real thing for Savant by Nick Abnett. Dan Abnett, however, is a different Abnett entirely. And we've got in our hands the reprint of the book Xenos. Which, in fairness, is also relatively cerebral and so on, as far as the <laughs> thousand universe is concerned. Okay. Um, Xenos is a science fiction novel written by Dan Abnett. Uh, it was written... Uh, almost ten years ago, I believe. It's quite some time ago. Goodly number of years. Goodly number of years. Um, and there's been this whole bunch. We've talked about the Hachette Partworks collection, and this is a, a reprint of Xenos in a lovely. Look at this. It's a lovely, physical, chunky hardback. Uh, irritatingly, it's got another part of an illustration, but I think you have to get the entire series to get the lovely picture on the side. So. Oh, I sort of like it when they do that, and I sort of don't. Because you have to get all of them. Because you have to get all of them. And you miss one in the middle. Yes, so all goes wrong. Yeah. And it's going to be this wonderful space marine, space epic picture as well. You just know it is, even though that appears to be a picture of maybe a spaceship, maybe it's someone's crotch. I'm not sure. Anywho, so by book three to find out. <laughs> yes. Um, well, no, because this the, like this is the middle bit of the anyway. So uh, it's got nice plates. <laughs> It's got nice plates, it's got nice bits and pieces. Shall we talk about what the actual book is about? It is shoot you bang in space, but it's not. So, uh, the world of Warhammer is set in the far, 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 far future, hence the word 40,000. Uh, we meet Grigor Eisenhorn. We do. And he's an inquisitor. And his job is to inquis. Hmm. Uh, essentially in the world of Warhammer um, in the far far future mankind has gone backwards and demons are real heresy is real 
horror is real. And it's very easy for a single person to fall uh, to essentially the forces of the devil, the forces of sin, the numerous forces of chaos. And if you're the wrong sort of person, for example, if you are the president of a planet, the governor of a planet, for example, then you can lead that entire world to fall. All you have to really do is just be the guy who runs the planetary defence shield. True. That does not sound like a small job. Not, well, no, it can be if you're just a soldier whose job is every Tuesday to sit at that gun and you just happen to it be. Is, a... It is one forty thousand. There are lots of people whose jobs it is to do this. The, the machines are not small in this universe. But essentially, things can go wrong. And there is a small band, and by small band, this is a, this is a world filled with big ideas and big things. This is a galaxy spanning organisation. Yeah, the, the world of Warhammer 40,000, as I like to say, is uh, 10,000 years long and a galaxy wide. So, there is a, there is a small organisation for scale, though there's quite a lot of people in it, yeah. called the Inquisition. And they deal with alien threats. They deal with mutant threats and mutant they deal threats. with traitors. And they deal with traitors. Which are known in the universe as... or the, or, the orders which deal with them are the Ordo Xenos, which deals with aliens. The Ordo... Uh, got lost. Uh, Ordo Hereticus deals with heresy. Aldrin Malleus is the other one. That's the demon. And the one that demons. Deal, deals with demons. Now, Xenos... And the books are, respectively, Xenos, Malleus, Hereticus. So... This is the first of. So there are aliens. We meet Grigor... Um, and they are indeed aliens. And what's going on is he has to investigate, kind of murder mystery style uh a series of progressively more and more disturbing heresies and conspiracies. And if memory serves, this is the one where we have a big defence field that may or may not be the thing that protects mankind from invasions of demonic horror. Big alien thing on the side of the world. Yeah. And there's a, and there are people who think, let's take this thing apart and see how it works. Because then we could replicate it. That always works. That's a really clever idea. It might be horrible alien technology, which we've forgotten about. There might be horrible aliens in it. This one's got Loxatl, which I love, which are the axolotl of guns that run up and down the sides. Um, Gregor's, um, Gregor has a posse. He has a posse of people who shoot and blow things up. Yep. He also has. He also meets a creature called Cherubal, who's this horrible, horrible monster thing that Gregor, being a good Inquisitor and being a good person and a hero, will have nothing to do with. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a horrible corruption. Xenos is an examination of how power corrupts. It's an examination of how uh, intergalactic state could create a uh, an organisation of absolute power and how that absolute power will inevitably corrupt whoever is there. It's those things. What it actually is is an action thriller novel with lots of shooty bang in space. Who'd have thought? It's also got lots of very clever themes. It has. And unlike Savant, which goes one place and then goes around in a circle. Xenos goes everywhere, and it goes from world to world to world, and rattles backwards and forwards quite a lot, in some quite severe ways. Um, it's crammed full of ideas, and it's got demons in it, and it's got weird worlds that do weird things. Um, 
That's what's got a book called the Necrotouche, which I quite like. Mm. Rather than the Necronomicon. Um, what is a touche? Book of Dead Touches. Not the Necrotouche, which is the Book of Dead Moustaches. <laughs> or Necrotouche. Or Necrotouche, yeah. Um, Necronomatouche? Necronomatouche. <laughs> Book of Dead Named Moustaches? Mm. But they don't skip over the the. It, it is a world building book. This one, I mean, unlike the other shoot to kill death in space one hundred ones for one hundred forty thousand, it does go into the more administrative side, more more of the ongoing pace. Simply recall this doesn't this doesn't skip over skips over those books in summary, but still say you know we spent six months researching this or chasing down leads and then gets back to when things happen. So they do. It does take time. This book is. There's a lot. It's not an NCIS. Every case happens in one week. Yeah, no. There's a lot because it's a very long investigation, and they meet all sorts of interesting characters and do all sorts of interesting things, and then randomly you have a dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, forgotten about the carnotons. There's just there's just a battle scene with a dinosaur in it. Well, because it wouldn't be you know if you have the opportunity to include dinosaur, I mean, include dinosaur. So. Yeah, I mean, he said something in the book on the radio. Uh, we've really badly described it, but <laughs> if you want to, if you want a better description of it, read it. Xenos is basically about a guy whose job it is to investigate horrible, horrible things that can destroy worlds. Uh, he comes across a book that can destroy worlds, the Necrotique, uh, which I probably said Necrotique, Necrotech, N E C R O T E U C H. Yep, that one. Yeah, um, so, and so it let's, comes. Let's just come up with your own commentary. It comes from an and alien civilization. It, it comes from an alien civilization that's ruined. That's been ruined, and there's a bunch of people going, "We well, should get this," and he's like, "No, it's my job to stop you from getting that." She, no, you, mm. you can't have your horrible civilization. Oh, our civilization would be better. Mm, really? Um, well, it can because it's one forty thousand. It can always be better. It's just not safely better. See, that's one of the things I found about Savant, is I didn't want to live in the world of Savant. But I was quite... But if I lived in the world of Savant, I wouldn't complain. Whereas if I lived in the world of 40, Warhammer 40,000, I'd try and find a way to leave. Yes. It, it's it's not a pleasant place to be. So the Marvel Universe. Would you want to live in the Marvel Universe? Ooh. Um, I mean, I would, because my surname's Fortune, and I get superpowers. I'm not you, sure that's you, main, how that you works. keep maintaining this. <laughs> um, I don't know. Because on the one hand, God is definitely real because he's four and he's got abs. Uh, on, on the one hand, you know, God is real. Well, Loki is real, and Loki's cute. Four is cute. Gods are real. Because it's Marvel Universe. The Your God... argument that we want to live in the Marvel Universe because the gods are cute. That's a good argument. On the other hand, you can go <laughs> shopping and they get stomped on by the Hulk. You could. I mean, imagine. imagine. If I don't you're... know what the life insurance rates must be like in the Marvel Universe. Imagine if you're standing, for example, in a queue and the Hulk's behind you and the Hulk, uh, and the Hulk has a toot. Has a toot? Farts. Right, okay. Well, the Hulk is the strongest there is. In which case, he probably won't even rock on his feet, would he? Well, well no, but you certainly would. Well, no, you're up in front of him. 
If, he's, if you're behind him... Yes, that would be un- wouldn't be unpleasant. Also, he's <laughs> the strongest there is. Yeah. You're going to die with the stench. This is not the, the queue to be in. If you, if you see him in the queue at Starbucks, pick a different Starbucks. There's one down the street. <laughs> go to the other one. You go to the other one, and there's like, you know, there's, there's She-Hulk, or four, or Spider-Man. Spider-Man, Spider-Man She-Hulk is now the Hulk, isn't she? This no, is, no, this no, is a no, new no, thing. no, no, no. She-Hulk is still She-Hulk. Uh, the Hulk is now Amadeus Cho. So, um... Ross hasn't been keeping up with the latest developments in Marvel. And to be fair, that sounds like it would be difficult. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the Hulk is now... They've done a thing where... So, Ms. Marvel is... Ms. Marvel Ms. is the one who Rogue stole the powers off. No, there's Captain Marvel. That's Carl Danvers. That's the one that had the powers from Rogue. Right. There's Ms. Marvel... Right. ...who is a young teenage American Muslim girl. Right. There is... Marvel girl, who's Jean Grey... Marvel Girl who's Jim Grey. They uh, like the word Marvel, don't Marvel, don't they? Well, yes, because, you know, uh, Shazam is not from Marvel, even though he's technically also Captain Marvel, but let's not go there. <laughs> Marvellous. Marvellous, yeah. Um, they, they've done a bit, so Captain America is currently Sam Wilson, for example, except he's yes. not. I think recent changes have happened. Um, and, and, is Thor Thor again? Uh, well, no, Thor is still Thor. Right. Uh, it's that a Thor's... The, the wield of the hammer happens to be a woman. Right. Is that still the case? Yes. Okay. Four is still four. Four has not stopped being four. Yes. Four is four. Um, but there is a character who is called the Orden Son, who was male. Right. Who is male? Who used to be? Um, who used to be the identity of four? Okay. And currently, the four is uh, identifies as a woman. Okay. And then has has very differently shaped armour as well. The sort that would annoy producer Al, actually. Mm, but still magic. Um, but it's really good. Shall we talk to a lovely author? Let's yes. talk to a lovely author. Let's. Ken Liao, welcome to Brave New Words. Uh, great. Uh, glad, glad to be here. Tell us about the paper Menagerie. Uh, so that's a collection of uh, short stories and novelettes and novellas I've written over the past decade or so. Um, uh, I've actually published over a hundred of these short pieces of short fiction, and uh, this collection gathers about fifteen of them together into one place as a retrospective of my work. Um, most of the stories in there have been published, uh, except there's one. Um, that I wrote just specifically for the collection. You're best known for your work translating the Freebody Problem and the obviously related series. Uh, how did you get into it? So for most of my career as a writer, I really had no interest in translation. And there was no, I mean, that was not something that I was figure interested in at all. Um, I was mostly focused on my original fiction. So I started out as a short fiction writer and I wrote, you know, as I mentioned, 100 uh, plus of them. Uh, published 100 plus of them. I wrote many more. Um, and then I started writing novels, uh, these very long epic fantasy novels. Uh, so The Grace of Kings, my debut novel, is somewhere around 190,000 words. So, you know, either I wrote short stories around 5,000 words I wrote, or I wrote these very long novels of about 190,000 words. Um, and so that was what I was focused on. Uh, the translation stuff happened sort of by accident. Uh, a friend of mine in China, uh, his name is uh, 
and feel fun. Um, and he uses the English name Stanley Chan sometimes. And Stan wanted me to take a look at one of his stories, which had been translated into English by a commercial translation company. Uh, and I took a look at the draft and uh, I started making corrections to it. Um, largely not, not so much corrections as uh, just, you know, I think there's a, there's a voice that you want to serve in fiction um, that that has really little to do with um, the f- the fidelity in the traditional sense of translation. It's not so much about meanings, but rather about the way you want to preserve the voice of a writer. Um, and so I started making corrections to that, and uh, and, and then so decided that it was easier if I just started doing the translation from scratch myself. And so that's how I started doing translations, really, uh, just by accident, because Stan asked me to take a look at one of his uh, translation drafts uh, and, and, and make some edits, uh, and I ended up just translating from scratch. Um, and uh, that was how I started, get, got started doing translations. Uh, you know, eventually I was asked to do the translations for Liu Cixin's hard sci-fi uh, trilogy, The Three-Body Problem. And that ended up uh, being a, a very uh, uh, influential work in English. Uh, uh, a lot of uh, readers who really have no interest in reading translation read that one. Uh, and it won the Hugo Award um, and was nominated for Nebula last year. Uh, and so that, uh, you know, that was, that was all very, um, very cool to be able to share this body of work with uh, English readers, um, my fellow English readers who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. So that's, that's how that got started. Uh, in terms of rather how similar it is to writing, um, you know, there are definitely similarities between uh, the creative effort involved in writing, in doing a good literary translation. Uh, but, but they're not, they're fundamentally not the same kind of work at all. Uh, if nothing else, when you're writing original fiction, you're not really collaborating with anyone, uh, whereas in translation, at a minimum, you have to constantly um, be aware of the fact that you're trying to replicate and recreate uh, a voice uh, from the author, uh, and that's a collaborative effort. Challenges there. What gets lost in translation? Um, I don't actually like to think of it that way. I know it's very common to sort of speak of loss in translation and all that, and I, I think that's actually not a very helpful metaphor and not particularly useful. Um, every text is really a conversation between an author and a reading community. Um, and of course, authors, when they compose texts, they're, they're writing in and speaking not into a vacuum, but into a literary tradition. And so... You know, the, the idea here is that before a reader can start interpreting a text, the reader actually has to become a co-creator of the text by hacking it with the reader's own assumptions and background interpretive framework. So before you read any work, you're in fact already writing that work in some sense as a reader. So when the text um, is composed in a different language for a different audience, who is familiar with a different literary tradition, um, and then the text is translated. Of course, the text will be interpreted in a different manner. Uh, but I don't, I don't consider it a matter of lost so much as it's a matter of uh, being, being different. So if you strictly have to you know, speak of it in economic terms, I suppose you could say that 
some things are quote unquote lost while other things are quote unquote gained. Um, uh, but but I, I don't think those kind of metaphors are particularly helpful. Uh, a uh, a non-Chinese reader approaching something like the three-body problem will not interpret the same way as a Chinese reader would, um, no matter who the translator is. But that it, it's not so much that the I, I, I find it troubling and in fact not helpful to sort of treat as one as authoritative one set of responses uh, and to treat another set of responses as, as entirely somehow um, uh, uh, not as valid uh, and, and, and in some sense, uh, you know, lost. Uh, I, I think it's more helpful to just sort of accept the fact that every reader is going to interpret every text differently and the Anglophone reader will interpret the text differently from the Chinese reader, uh, and, uh, and and there are things that will be lost because of the different uh, historical backgrounds and the different interpretive frameworks readers bring to it. But a lot of things are also gained, uh, and so I think it's more interesting to think about just what you know what is different rather than what is what is lost. How significant is the role of a translator as a part of a, a collaborative element? to the creation of the work for that new audience? Well, that's also an interesting question. Um, well, I, I guess my answer would be that, um, first of all, I don't think it's, I don't think the the supposed idea of the translator as being a, a, a very um, transparent uh, filter is particularly useful or accurate. Um, translation is really like a performance art. So, uh, you have the score, and you have different translators performing it, and the result will be very different. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, every performance artist puts something of herself into the very performance, uh, even if you know they're performing from a score that others have uh, performed countless times. So yes, I guess in some sense, every translator acts as a filter, and something of the translator's particular approach, style, and ethical philosophy about translation gets into the text. Um, uh, but that's sort of the nature of, of the business. Uh, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's particularly helpful in the case of the three-body problem, for example, that you have a different translator doing the second book in the series than the first and third books. Uh, I did the first and third book, but uh, Joe Martinson did the second book. And by comparing our differences, you can sort of see, get more insight into the way, you know, by triangulation into the insight, get some insight into the way the author gets the scene's own style is different, both from Joe's style and from my style. Uh, and in that way, you get a sense of how how things. Um, you get a sense of how how the uh, how the Chinese text probably read, uh, independent of the translator's contribution. So your fantasy series is on its way to our bookshelves. Um, can you tell us a bit about the Grace of Kings, the Wall of Storms, and your fantasy series in general, please? Um, well, I can I can try to pitch the Grace of Kings first because the Wall of Storm is is a sequel in the in the series, and I would have to make sure that um, uh, <laughs> that, that you read the Grace of Kings first. Uh, so I would pitch it as this: I would say uh, the Grace of Kings is war and peace with airships, 
Uh, it is Romance of the Three Kingdoms with some Marines. Uh, it is a story um, about war and, and politics and rebellion and revolution, all done in a fantastical setting that's inspired by grand epics from the Western tradition as well, from the East Asian tradition. So it's cross-cultural alternate history? Um, I don't think of it in, that, in those terms. Uh, I mean, the world and the setting is, I guess, a character as well. Um, for me, I guess the star of the work is just the very, the, very, uh, the very fact that I've done something that I think is not, has not been really attempted before, which is to try to tell a foundational myth drawn from East Asia, Asian tradition, but, but to reimagine it using a tra- fantasy framework and using a set of fantasy tropes that are drawn from Western literature as well as East Asian traditions. What genre would you put it in on your bookshelf? Um, I don't actually think in terms of genre labels that much. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, as a reader, I don't really care about genre labels. Uh, so as a writer, I never cared about it either. Uh, I think someone once said something to the effect of um, my science fiction reads a lot like fantasy and my fantasy reads a lot like science fiction. I think the person meant it as a criticism of some sort, but I actually take it as a compliment. Uh, I don't really care about general labels, and so uh, the fact that what I write ends up being somewhat hard to classify is, to me, a good thing. Um, so, you know, taking taking my short fiction output, for example, um, uh, a lot of my, my well-known short fiction works, like The Paper Menagerie and other stories, uh, a lot of people have said, you know, that's not really fantasy as we understand it. Uh, it's uh, because throughout the book, um, there's, no, there's no real explanation for a magic system. There's no, there's no attempt to even bother with creating a magic system. Uh, the animals come to life when they want to be, when they need to be, uh, and then they, they, they're not alive when they, when they don't. Uh, it, it seems to seems that the, the, the entire fantastical premise of the paper manager seems to be merely there as a metaphor to 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 say something else, um, and that is in fact my approach. I don't particularly care about uh, magic uh, or technology for the sake of technology. Uh, they're there to serve as metaphors to tell a story, and so if. A lot of times, you know, I would tell a story, and uh, if I want to use science fictional tropes to make the logic of metaphors work, I will do so. And if I need to resort to magical metaphors to make it work, then I will do that. Um, so a lot of my short fiction could be classified as science fiction or fantasy, depending on, on your mood. Uh, and The Grace of Kings itself, and as well as its sequel, The Wall of Storms, are similar in that way. Um, both of these novels have uh, are marketed as epic fantasy uh and of course uh that's because they contain large massive um armies uh they they, they contain uh supernatural gods uh they contain uh fantastical creatures uh who are intelligent who are who are uh, just huge magical creatures uh so these are fantastical elements uh but that that's not really where the the, the point or the feel of the story is um, a lot of the story reads also like uh, reads also like science fiction because you have these massive airships 
and submarines and other uh, contraptions being constructed out of uh, a technology vocabulary that's based on East Asian traditions. And so you can read The Grace of Kings and The Wall of Storms as science fiction novels, uh, steampunk-ish. Uh, I call it silk punk because it's not really based on 19th century uh, Victorian England uh, as, the, as the technology inspiration or the technology, the source of the technology aesthetic. It's much more of a uh, East Asian historical romance, um, classical uh, Chinese uh, kind of uh, technology aesthetic. Uh, so I call it silk punk. But that you know you can you can sort of read it as a science fictional novel. Um, however you wanna you wanna classify it, it really doesn't really matter much to me. What what matters is the fact that it is using these set of tropes to tell a fantastical story. Uh, and I wanted to do it in this way because again it hasn't really been done in that way before. And I think uh, the, the 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 magic of speculative fiction is that you take advantage of using a logic of metaphors to construct something that can't be done using realist uh, techniques. Is genre as diverse as it thinks it is? Okay. Um, I don't know if I'm much of an authority on that. Um, uh, and I, I think it's uh, that's the sort of um, large-scale uh, question that tends to be... You, you, would, you would tend to get a different answer from every individual in it. Um, I, I guess my view is this. Um, I, I don't know if diversity in the abstract is a value that can be spoken of um, and, and judged by itself. I think what's more important is whether everybody who wants to participate in fandom uh, feels that they're welcomed, that is, their stories are told that is, the stories they're looking for are not devalued, uh, that the kind of traditions and interpretive frameworks they want to see reflected are, in fact, being reflected. Uh, and I would say that, you know, on those kind of bases, depending on who you are, you're going to have a very different kind of experience uh, because we're all limited in some degree. Um, you know, there are stories that we are comfortable with, that we're familiar with, and we go into fandom. And if we happen to be of um, the type, uh, we happen to, to, to belong to a group uh, that, that tends to have its stories told repeatedly over and over again, then we may not see that there's, there's a problem. Uh, and, and conversely, if we belong to a group that tends to be marginalized and our stories are not told, then, of course, we're going to find them and we're going to see issues in every direction. Um, and I think it's not possible, really, for any individual to go in there and, and say, I can give a comprehensive uh, overall judgment on just how diverse and welcoming fandom is. Uh, this is this is going to have to be an individual experience, and you're going to have to go in there and, and ask a lot of people, talk to a lot of people, and try to empathize with everyone's different views. Um, so... I don't know if I have a simple answer for you on that. Uh, I, I would say that there are definitely stories I want to tell that could not be told and, and weren't easy to tell. Uh, and there are stories that I want to tell uh, that ended up being very difficult to do. Uh, and it's a struggle. Uh, and it's a struggle that I think a lot of writers, readers, critics share um, because, you know, the world is not perfect and we have to keep on working at it. If you got to rescue one single work of art in such a way that it would survive until the end of time, what would that be? 
That is a very tough question. Let me think. Um, could it be, okay, could it, could it, could, how about this? The, the work of art I would nominate for surviving um, all humanity would be the human genome. Uh, because with that preserved, everything else has the potential of being recreated. That that would be my answer. Nice. So you meet the 16-year-old version of yourself just for just long enough to give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be? Oh, that's easy. I would tell him to go buy some Apple stock uh, because uh, he would do very well later on. <laughs> Truth or beauty? Uh, damn, that is so tough. Um, truth, yes, truth. Ken Liao, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, it's a pleasure. They were lovely. They were. Right, so we've talked about Xenos badly. We've talked about Savant vaguely. We've talked about superheroes disgustingly. Yes. And um, we've briefly discovered, uh, discussed uh, Daventry. Yes. We've done very well. <laughs> this has been your average episode of the uh, Really, book. really. If you, <laughs> if you have a better idea for a book show, or you think you can do a better job, do, and then send us the link, and we'd love to listen to it. Uh, do not send us the link to Tea and Jeopardy. We've heard it. It's good. <laughs> it's very good. So. <laughs> We're going to get that. The link to Tea and Jeopardy. <laughs> Oh yes, um, we're still getting Amazon loves a shetty stories. By the way, feel free to send us your stories about romance between two large book producing giants. You can catch us on social media. We're at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. Tell your friends, please tell your friends. Like, subscribe, share. Uh, and I have been Ed Fortune. I've been Ross. I've been producer Al. Steve Speed Shop is a place to discuss, debate, and just waffle on about old and interesting motors, mainly, but not exclusively, of the internal combustion variety. We'll have auction reports, buyer's guides, show previews and restoration stories to inspire, excite and occasionally terrify. That's the Speed Shop with me, Steve Berry, here on Fab Radio International. <laughs>